So, so today's lesson, I'm just going to give you a 401, especially at the beginning, it's going to be difficult for some of you. And the reason that is, is that it'll be difficult if you haven't gone through any apologetics training with us yet. Okay. So we do apologetics twice in the seven year cycle. And a lot of that is philosophy and, and, and how do we think and why do we think? So if you haven't done that yet with us, hold on. We move from more philosophy to wisdom ideas real quick. But I, I just want to get that out of the way. When we use terms like existentialism and we use like, we quote guys like Nietzsche, um, I, I don't want you to freak out. Okay? Scientific materialism. Um, if you've been doing apologetics with us, you'll get it, right? If you haven't, hold on. I promise we're coming back. Um, so let's jump in ahead first. And tonight we're going to best develop in 20 minutes what Martin Luther referred to as a theology of the cross, as a theology of the cross. So let's pray and let's dive. So Father God, as we, as we jump in first into the deep end and as we move uh, more into uh, the swimming lanes, uh, Lord, we ask that you keep us afloat. Uh, we ask that you keep us focused, uh, that we'd be able to um, uh, see where A equals B equals C and how it all flows together. In Jesus' name, amen. So how do we know anything? How do we know anything? How do we know what is true? And maybe the most important question, how do we know God? These questions have been asked literally by every civilization since the dawn of time. And even today, depending on who you talk to on the street corner, you're going to find a plethora of different answers. If you're agnostic, you will answer the question, how do we know anything with an absolute we can't? If you're a scientific materialist, you'll answer the same question by saying that we can only know something, know something for certain <laughs> via the scientific method. Everything else is just a chance. And as we move down the rabbit trail of knowledge, we have to ask the specific question, how do we know what is true? What type of tests do you use to determine if something is true? And by true, I mean reflects reality. How many eyewitnesses do you need to trust someone's testimony? Is two enough? What about three? Can three people still lie and get it wrong? Do you need five? How many people do you need to get the real story? How many scientists or philosophers or theologians have to agree on something to make it true? Or maybe how many now have to disagree on that same thing to call it into question? And at the end of the rabbit hole, at least for this discussion, is the question, how do we know God? How do we know God? And to the Catholic theologian, it starts at creation. If you get to read any of um, Thomas Aquinas, you see that in his Summa Theologica, which probably won't happen until you're at least in college. Okay, And they would be right in knowledge... That there is a God. They, uh, they get that right. The Catholic theologian get that to right. They can look at creation. They can start with creation. And they can come to the understanding that there is a God. Romans 1, 19-20 makes that abundantly clear. For what we can know about God is plain to us. Because God has shown it to us. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. But knowing about someone 
something and knowing someone are two very different things, right? None of you would read a complete stranger's Facebook profile and then turn around and tell me, oh yeah, I know that. Like none of you would read a famous celebrity's Wikipedia page, even if it's super thorough, right? And then turn around and be like, yeah, I, I know, I know that. I know Brad. You know, we're good. Pet. Um, so the first fill in the blank is it's pretty obvious, right? But it needs to be stated. And that is to know and to know of are two very different things. To know and to know of are two very different things. So how can we know about God? Look, some claim it's by creation, by miracles, by spiritual experiences. But Luther knew if it was only those things, we would become puffed up. If I can know all there is about God by the more I know about nature, then my knowledge is what drives me to the creator. It would be knowledge or experience that would attach us to God. And like most other religions on the planet, it would not lead to humble people. And even Christians who go off the rail and become prideful typically fall into this category. They rely on their own knowledge and, and the what's or the checkpoints of God to feel like they know God. Luther would say that God is known through what is contrary. This is his quote. He is known in a hidden way. God's invisible attributes are revealed in suffering and the cross. Glory in shame. Wisdom in folly. Power in weakness. Victory in defeat. God is known through the message of the cross. And this is what we're going to cover tonight. This is Luther's theology of the cross, which sets him apart so much from the Catholic theologians of the day. And for us in the modern world, sets us apart from many, yes, within the Catholic stream, but some even within, you know, our own um, highway lanes where we miss this and then become puffed up. The idea claims that knowing God starts with knowing the cross and its implications. Namely, and this is your next fill in the blank, we would know God as we share in his sufferings. We would know God as we share in his sufferings. The reason this is so important today and why it blends right into our series on modern Luther is that the competing idea of knowing God through glory is alive and well in America. And what do I mean by that? Knowing God through glory. The theologians of glory pursue wisdom, experiences, miracles, and say that suffering is bad. This is like the American Christianity. The idea that if you are suffering, then you must have sinned against an almighty God and something is wrong with you. But that is not in the Bible. But the theologian of the cross values suffering as that through which God is revealed. Knowledge of God is not found through human wisdom, human powers, or human achievements. It is found in the foolishness of the cross. Throughout Psalm 119, which I'm not going to quote tonight, it's the longest psalm in scripture, you find three subjects brought up. I would suggest if you're looking for something this week to dive into the word on, read Psalm 119. You'll see this throughout. But these three ideas are brought up over and over again. And that's prayer, meditation, and trials. Prayer, meditation, and trials. You read Psalm 119, it's littered. 
And in our search for knowing God, these three things are neglected at an alarming pace, aren't they? I mean, think about it. Prayer. Ain't nobody got time for that. And if you're following on social media at all after this week's massacre in Sutherland, Texas, prayer is now openly mocked. Right? Which is quite a misunderstanding. Prayer in Scripture is rarely there for its own sake, but leads to change and action on the ones who lift it up. We forget that sometimes as evangelicals, that prayer is rarely solo. It's always coupled with something. We are not a people of prayer because we don't think we need it. And that's what it really comes down to. If I'm not considered myself a person of prayer, it's because I really don't think I need it. Mostly because we think we really don't need God most times of the day. That's what we're convinced of. Meditation, two. You probably only think of this in relation to some sort of like Buddhism or Eastern religion. But to think upon the word of God, to wrestle with what he is teaching you, to slow down, to pause. In the 21st century, we are convinced we don't have time to slow down. Many of us don't find time to breathe. Right? And trials. Well, those can't be from God, surely. Right? The sufferings that we deal with, the deaths in the family, the cancer diagnosis, the friend who was in a car accident, you showing up at the ER again with another sports injury. Patrick. But these, if you look at Psalm 119 and the rest of Scripture, are the main vehicles in which we know God better. That's so contrary, right? Like these these moments, those trials, are the main ways that people know God better. Psalm 119.67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Psalm 119.71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. It was good for me that I was afflicted? Like, tattoo that on your arm, right? Like, that's, like, weird. Okay? Psalm 119.75. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, and that is that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Psalm 119.75. Many of, us, many of us live with the delusion that if we understand the world we live in more, we will understand God more. That's what we believe. If I just were to understand the world more, then I'm going to get God more. But it's really the exact opposite. And this next fill in the blank. It's the more we understand God many times through trials that we better understand the world. It's the more we understand God many times through trials that we better understand the world. I love this story. The preacher, famous preacher D.L. Moody told a story about a Christian woman who was always bright, cheerful, optimistic even though she was confined to her room with an illness. She lived in an attic apartment on the fifth floor of an old rundown building. A friend decided to visit her one day and brought about another woman who was rather wealthy. Since there were no elevator, the two ladies began to climb the long climb upward. And when they reached the second floor, the well-to-do woman commented, How, what a dark and filthy place. And her friend replied, it's better up. It's better higher up. And when they arrived at the third landing, the remark was made, things look even worse here. Again, the reply, it's better higher up. And the two women finally reached the attic level where they found a bedridden saint of God. A smile on her face radiated the joy that filled her heart. And although the room was clean and there were flowers were on the windowsill, the wealthy visitor could not get over the stark surroundings that this woman lived in. 
She blurted out, It must be very difficult for you to be in here like this. And without a moment's hesitation, the shut-in responded, It's better higher up. She was not looking at the temporal things of earth. With an eye of faith fixed on the eternal, she had found the secret to true satisfaction and contentment in the world. And stories like these are just ridiculous to the world. I mean, we should mock that. Like, what a fool. What an idiot living in some Chicago attic that thinks it's better up here. You kidding me? I'd like my legs back, please. I'd like my health back. But this lady has joy. Because it's better higher up. 1 Corinthians 23.25 tells us how the world views us in light of these stories. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. Luther's tenets of theology of the cross are broken down like this. I'm literally giving you the, the fill in the blanks. They're, I'm going to give you all five. It's going to become pretty quickly, but I'll try to slow down. Okay? Number one, this is what he wrote on it. The theology of the cross is broken down like this. One, the theology of the cross is a theology of revelation. A theology of revelation. Why is that important? Because it's in contrast to speculation, right? You meet with the religious gurus of the day, whether it's the atheistic guru who sits at the end of your table at school or it's the guru at the shrine down the road. It's all speculation, right? Well, if this and this, if this many angels were on the head of a pen, or if I think this about God, it's, it's all speculation, right? It's all based on human knowledge. Any notions about God we might come to through speculation of creation or experiences are subverted by the revelation of God in the cross. We're not speculating about stuff. It's very clear what happened in 33 AD. They got four books based on it. And they got nine other non-Christian scholars who are like telling us that it happened. They're not speculating. They're just being frank. Number two... The revelation of God in the cross is a hidden revelation. It's a hidden revelation. It's indirect. It is a revelation, but it's not immediately recognizable in and of itself. That's why we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes. Oh, it's there. Next. The revelation of God is found in the cross of Christ. The revelation of God is found in the cross of Christ. Look, it's not found through human works and reason. Revelation through suffering shatters all our pretensions to know God through human reason or human morality. We're going to meet God in suffering. We're going to know God best in suffering. Four. God is therefore known only by faith. He can be discerned only by faith. And again, that's in contrast to like human reason. Like, I came to the decision to follow Jesus all by myself. I read all the good poets and my favorite Twitter handles. And now I'm a Christian. No, it's by faith. That is a gift from God. We talked about that 
earlier on as we were talking about the modern Luther series. Five, lastly, God is particularly known through sufferings. It is not just that God can be known through sufferings, but that he uses suffering to make himself known. So this is, this just came to me, so it's not written down. I love it when he does that. When people, you know, question Christians about the problem of evil, right? Well, evil's the main vehicle in which God, it seems to show us themselves to us. We saw the suffering in the world, and he uses that to make himself new. So, yeah, there's suffering in the world, and God uses it. Thank the Lord. How do you answer the problem of evil? Because the problem of evil is not just a Christian problem, right? The atheist still has to account for morality. The agnostic's got to do the same. Scientific materialist? Well, if it's just the goo through the zoo to you, and someone else is in pain, well, that's survival of the fittest, right? Like, should we have any moral feelings about this, the weak suffering? It should be a good thing, right? Hitler did. Hitler thought so. That's why the second half of his book was, you know, the favored races. We've got to get rid of all those people that... Uh, don't look like me. Okay? But God uses our suffering to make himself known. And for Luther, this encompasses both the sufferings of Christ and the sufferings of the individual. God humiliates us so that we may know him. It's trusting God no matter the circumstance. It's trusting God no matter the circumstance. I'll end with this story. It's a little long of suffering, or so we think. But I think it hits the point. And here's the point before I jump into the story. Do we lean on our own knowledge? Do we lean on our own knowledge? Or do we trust God? And therefore know Him better? Do we lean on our own knowledge? Or do we trust God and therefore know Him better? This is a story by Max Lakato, Lakato, Lakadu, whatever his name is, one of his books. Once there was an old man who lived in a tiny village. Although poor, he was envied by all, for he had a beautiful white horse. Even the king coveted his treasure. A horse like this had never been seen before. Such was its splendor, its majesty, its strength. People offered fabulous prizes for the steed, but the old man always refused. He'd say, this horse is not a horse to me. He would tell them, it is a person. How could you sell a person? He's a friend, not a possession. How could you sell a friend? The man was poor. And the temptation was great, but he never sold the horse. And then one morning, that horse was not in the stable. And all the village came to see him. You old fool! They'd scoff. We told you that someone would steal the horse. We warned you that you would be robbed. You're so poor. How could you ever have hoped to protect such a valuable animal? It would have been better that you would have sold him. You could have gotten whatever price you wanted. No amount would have been too high. Now your horse is gone and you've been cursed with misfortune. The old man responded, don't speak too quickly. Say only that the horse is not in the stable. That is all we know. The rest is judgment or speculation, not revelation. If if I've been cursed or not, how can you know? How can you judge? The people contestant. Don't make us out to be fools. We may not be philosophers, but great philosophy is not needed. The simple fact is that your horse is gone. The simple fact that your horse is gone is a curse. The old man spoke again. All that I know is that the stable is empty and the horse is gone. The rest I don't know. Whether it be a curse or a blessing, I can't say. All I can see is a fragment 
Who can say what will come next? The people of the village laughed, of course. They thought the man was crazy. They had always thought he was a fool. If he wasn't, he would have sold the horse and lived off the money. But instead, he was poor woodcutter. An old man, still cutting firewood and dragging out to the forest and selling it. He lived hand to mouth in his miserable poverty. Now he had proven that he was indeed a fool. After 15 days, the horse returned. He hadn't been stolen. He had run away into the forest. Not only had he returned, but he had brought a dozen wild horses with him. Once again, the village people gathered around the woodcutter and spoke. Old man, you were right, and we were wrong. What we thought was a curse was a blessing. Please forgive us. The old man responded, once again, you go too far. far. Say only that the horse is back. State only that a dozen horses returned with him, but don't judge. How do you know if this is a blessing or not? You only see a fragment. Unless you know the whole story, how can you judge? You can only read one page of the book. Can you judge the whole book? You read only one word of a phrase. Can you understand the entire phrase? Life is so vast, yet you judge all of life with one page or one word. All you have is a fragment. Don't say this is a blessing. No one knows. I am content with what I know. I am not perturbed, but what I don't. Maybe the old man is right. They said to one another, so they, so they said little, but deep down, they knew he was wrong. They knew it was a blessing. Twelve wild horses had returned with one horse. With a little work, the animals could be broken and trained and sold for much more money. The old man had a son, an only son. The young man began to break the horses. And after a few days, he fell from one of the horses and broke both legs. Once again, the villagers gathered around the old man to cast their judgments. You are right, they said. You, were proved, a, you proved you were right. The dozen horses were not a blessing. They were a curse. Not only has your son broken his legs, and now in your old age you have no one to help you. Now you are even poorer than ever. The old man spoke again. You people are obsessed with judging the moment. Don't go so far. Say only that my son broke his legs. Who knows if it's a blessing or a curse? No one knows. We only have a fragment. Life comes in fragments. It so happened that just a few weeks later, the country engaged in a war with a neighboring country. All the young men of the village were required to join the army. Only the son of the old man was excluded because he was injured. Once again, the people gathered around the old man, crying and screaming because their sons had been taken. There was little chance that they would return. The enemy was strong and their war was a losing struggle. They would never see their sons again. You are right, old man, they wept. God knows you are right. This proves it. Your son's accident was a blessing. His legs may be broken, but at least he's with you. Our sons are gone forever. The old man spoke again. It is impossible to talk with you. You always draw conclusions. No one knows. Say only this. Your sons had to go to war, and mine did not. No one knows if this is a blessing or a curse. No one is wise enough to know. Only God knows. Only God knows. So do you trust that God through thick and thin? Do you have confidence in the midst of blessing and tragedy? And do you seek answers to life's greatest challenges? Or do you seek a person? This is the theology of the cross and why it's so important to us today.